Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the word of God. Lord, we thank you that you've given to us uh, an unmistakable revelation. That, Lord, you are in the business of changing people's lives. And that, Lord, you have given us victory and triumph if we will trust you, the true and the living God. And, Lord, you've given us permission to call upon you for power and for help. And, Lord, we know that that permission comes from a heart willing to turn from sin and willing to trust you. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray tonight for every man and for every woman. Lord, I pray for every person who's heard this story one time and a hundred times. Lord, I pray that we could see it with fresh eyes and hear it with fresh ears. Lord, give us the heart of a child. But Lord, cause us to think carefully and deeply about your revelation. In Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes, Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they entered into the valley of Elah. And they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekelim of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekel, which is about 20 pounds. And a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, a Judah, whose name was Jesse. 
and who had eight sons, and the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning left the sheep with a keeper and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array. Army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, who, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail within him. Because of him, your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your 
servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose from for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch, which he had, and his sling was, was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about him and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. I'll do that in the Akkadian language. That's the part that was left out. And you don't want to hear what it means. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and all that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put in his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand 
of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'raim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. What's not to love about this story? Who doesn't love this story? I, you know, the only people I could think of is maybe Goliath's wife and kids and family. It's possible that they came to love this story. One of the things that you immediately sense when you read the story is the truth that everyone has enemies. And in this chapter, we learn that enemies can be conquered and devils can be defeated. And even when the circumstances are impossible, victory and triumph can come to every man and every woman who will trust in the true and the living God and will call upon him for power and, and for help. And the other thing is that we all have giants. We all have difficulties, and the giants that we face can be intimidating. And doing battle with giants can be lonely. But we also know that trusting God and believing God and honoring God and then being used by God is one of the most exhilarating things that a person could ever experience. The giant oppresses God's people. And we've learned about David and his skill with a harp. And now we are going to learn a little bit more about David's skill with a sword. And we're introduced to Goliath, the ultimate fighting machine. But the story is clearly more than just a young shepherd boy who kills a giant. It becomes a picture of the shepherd of Israel destroying the oppressor of God's people. And the lessons are many. But the ultimate lesson, the ultimate showdown, is the showdown between good and evil and right and wrong. 
It's the showdown between the enemies of God and what it means to be defeated by the people of God through the power of God. David comes to the Valley of Elah with provisions from his father, intending to refresh the family. He comes with a shepherd's sling, and he comes with a shepherd's staff. And the sling and the staff are symbols of confidence and trust in the Lord. And he will leave the valley with the giant sword, which is the emblem of death and the power of death. David will defeat the giant. But remember what the giant really is. The giant has the power to kill God's people. And David will vanquish the giant. Now remember, the story centers around these key words. The giant comes out and says, I will defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man. That we might fight together. Now it's interesting to me that when Jehovah sought after a man, when Jehovah went looking for a man, he discovers a man after his own heart. He chooses David and Goliath is going to have the man that he asks for. And he's going to have the fight that he, that he asks for, but he's not going to expect this kind of a fight because the weapons of the of the warfare are going to be the weapons of a shepherd but even the weapons of a shepherd become no match for the weapons of a warrior when the true and the living god are with the shepherd the shepherd has only one goal and the shepherd's goal is to honor the father and protect the flock of God. And I'm sure you've been told many stories, many lessons, and many applications. But the ultimate lesson, the ultimate lesson has more to do than simply with David. It becomes a type and a picture of David's son. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the shepherd and the conflict in the, in the Valley of Elah, has more to do with another conflict, another conflict that takes place in the Kidron Valley in the shadow of death. It is on the sides of Mount Moriah. The conflict takes place, and it is the cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And you're going to see in Jesse's son, picture in the past that's going to open up to you a picture that's going to take place for Jesse's other son. The conflict of the cross is going to face the ultimate giant. And what Goliath and his sword represents and what the other giant represents is exactly the same. It is the giant called death. And Jesus will take away the giant's power to hurt us forever. 
So we're going to begin with the contending armies. We're going to go through part of our study. We're going to face the giants. Look at verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. In the very first verse, we're given the battle plans and the positions of the contending armies. And Ephes Damim is a Hebrew word. It means the borders of blood. This is the battlefield. And clearly, blood marks the boundary between life and death. On one side is Soko. You know what that word means in the Hebrew language? It's the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where the glory of God dwells. This is the place that was called the sanctuary. This was the place where the people met with God. And the other is Azekah, which means the border or the fence. But it really speaks of rest. And so what we're talking about is a war where on one side is the refuge and the other side is the rest and both belong to Judah and both are being threatened by the Philistines. I want you to understand the big picture. The big picture is this place belongs to Judah. The place of refuge and the place of rest belong to Judah. It belongs to the tribe that's aptly named Praise. In other words, we are opened with an attack by the Philistines and they're in a place where they don't belong and that's where your giants always show up, don't they? They show up in the place between your refuge and between your rest and they show up and they disrupt your refuge and they disrupt your rest and they're menacing. And they want to overtake your life. Our enemies will seek the territory that belongs to God. And the enemy of our soul will often bring a giant. And look at verse 2. It says, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And by the way, the valley of Elah means oak. It means the place of strength. Saul and the men of Israel put forth a battle formation against the enemy. But here is here's the sickening thing. Here's the desperate thing. Saul and his armies have little strength in the presence of their enemies. And sometimes you as a Christian, sometimes you as a believer, sometimes you come to a place where you are attacked and confronted and intimidated. And so you bring those resources to the battle. But they seem hopeless and helpless in the face of the overwhelming enemy. Saul and the men of Israel have failed to learn the lesson, the valley, the valley of strength, the valley of Elah. This is the place of 
blessing. But the place have blessing and the place of refuge and the place of rest has lost its power in the presence of their enemies. You know what? I'm reminded of David's psalm. Remember in Psalm 23 in verse 4, David writes, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There are valleys that we have to walk through. There are valleys that we have to get through. Shadows lurk in the valley. But David writes that God is in the shadows. He says, you are with me. Here is the key concept. The enemy is strong. But the Lord is stronger. The enemy is strong. But the Lord is stronger. And the enemy may be fear. And the enemy may be disappointment. And the enemy may be resentment. And the enemy may be a lack of finances. Whatever your giant is. And whatever giant that you brought to church tonight with you. It may seem overwhelming and intimidating. The giant is real. And the giant's strength is real. But the Lord is real. And the strength of the Lord is stronger. And in verse 3 it says, The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other. And there was a valley between them. And in that valley... A battle is going to be fought. And the challenge of the champion comes forth. Look what it says. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from God, whose height was six cubits in a span. Now, we know what Goliath is. He's a Philistine. But he's not your garden variety Philistine. He is Philistine on steroids. Now remember what the Philistine is. It becomes a type and a, and a picture of all of the enemies of God. But Gath is the embodiment of evil. He becomes for the Christian, for the believer, a type and a picture of Satan. By the way, do you know what his name means? Goliath? It's a word that means exiled. Isn't that interesting? An exile. And his hometown is Gath. The word Gath in the ancient language meant the wine press. It was the place where the grapes were crushed. And wine presses in the Bible often speak of the fierceness of the wrath of God. And Satan is the ultimate refuge. Remember, Satan is the ultimate exile. He is kicked out of heaven. He is given power and glory and majesty. And his, power, his glory is taken away. And his majesty is taken away. And his place in heaven is taken away. But guess what's not taken away? His power is not taken away. He is the ultimate exile. And I think... 
of Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, where there is this picture of Jesus Christ returning to the planet Earth. And it says, now out of the mouth of Jesus, that is the Messiah, now out of the mouth of Jesus goes a sharp sword and with it that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. And the picture is a picture of a Messiah whose robes are stained with the blood of his enemies. But here is the satanic counterfeit. Gab, the exile from the town called Winepress. He comes from the place where you crush your enemies. The former governor of California, he used to play a, a role called Conan the Barbarian. And in one, one of his movies, he actually strung three whole sentences together. I thought he should have gotten an Academy Award for it. But in this, he plays this incredible barbarian. And, and you know, his little mentor asks him, you know, tell us what you think is pleasant. And he goes, to crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of the women. This is Goliath. He lives to crush his enemies, to destroy everything in its path. He is the great refugee. He is the exiled one. He is the one who represents everything that is wicked and evil. And by the way, Goliath's height is matched by his strength. And make no mistake about it, I don't think that his height is an accident. It's six cubits and a span. Remember, six is the number of a man. And seven is the number of perfection. I think this becomes a type and a picture of he is as big as men can get. You know how big a cubit is? A cubit was the distance between your elbow and your middle finger. Now, depending on how tall you are, that's about 18 inches. So Goliath is six cubits and a span. The span is the length of your hand from the middle finger to your palm. This places Goliath at about 9 feet 11 inches. He's almost 10 feet tall. Can you imagine if the Lakers got a hold of him? Now again, depending on how big the arm and how big the hand he's way over nine feet closer to ten feet and you know what impresses me about the text is that it gives specifics and you know why I think that this is important because somebody measured his dead carcass Somebody went out there and they said, okay, let's just see how big he really is. One, two, three, four, five, six. And a span. And in verse 5 it says he has a bronze helmet on his head and he is armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat is 5,000 shekelim. You know what that means? 
that means that his armor weighs 150 pounds. Just his armor is 150 pounds. And I can almost guarantee you the armor that he's wearing is more than David weighs. Goliath is a living tank. He is a walking, killing machine. And he has bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. And in verse 7 it says, Now the staff of his spear is like a weaver's beam. It's a gigantic pole. And at the end of the pole is an iron spearhead that weighs 600 shekelim, which is about 20 pounds. If you're a world-class athlete and you have a 20-pound shot... The best athletes in the world can push that shot forward several hundred feet. And this guy is nine feet tall. With a weaver's beam and a 20-inch shot put that is sharpened at the end, it would penetrate and crush anything that it came in contact with. And remember what Goliath is. He's not just simply a type and a picture of everything that is wicked and evil, but he's covered like a statue in brass. By the way, brass in the Bible always speaks of judgment. David is a boy. And the only thing that he has to cover him is the skin that his mom and dad bequeathed to him. Or what little linen was sewn by his mother to cover his body. Goliath is covered in brass, and David is covered with the anointing presence of the Holy Spirit. He is covered with the presence of the Lord. He is covered with the promise of the Lord. He is covered with the plan of God. David doesn't need anything else. I don't know what it is that you think that you need to defeat your giant. I don't know if you're thinking that my giant is so huge and so wicked and so intimidating that I need professional help. I need calculated help. I need professional intervention. But I'm here to tell you and I really want you to understand this. That the power of God and the presence of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God, the Spirit of God, the promises of Jesus Christ, everything the Bible says that pertains to life and to godliness has been given to you in the knowledge of your Savior. This might sound simplistic. And it might even sound naive. 
But Paul writes about it in the book of Romans. And he says that you've been given everything that you need. That you've been given all grace and all knowledge. So as that you can withstand those things that come against you. And in verse 8, it says, Then he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. That's what the enemy does. We're in a war. And in a war you fight. And remember what the Philistine is. The Philistine is the enemy of God and the opposition that takes place because they are occupying property that doesn't belong to them. Refuge, rest belongs to you. The peace of God belongs to you. The love of God belongs to you. The presence of the Holy Spirit belongs to you. So why doesn't Saul fight? We know from earlier chapters that he's head and shoulders above all the rest of them. You know why? Because he's a coward. And he's definitely not a godly leader. Now, as a godly leader, he could have claimed Deuteronomy chapter 20. You may not know about Deuteronomy chapter 20, but Deuteronomy chapter 20 is the instructions that were given to the armies of Israel of how to conduct themselves in battle. And Deuteronomy chapter 20 contains the law of warfare. And it says in verse 4, For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you. But it meant everything to David. And the reason why it meant everything to David, read it again, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 4, For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Because the truth is that sometimes your enemies are overwhelming and intimidating. And if you make the sorry decision to go toe-to-toe with the devil, I guarantee you, you will lose. Martin Luther said it best. When Sadevan stops knocking at the door, make sure you send Jesus to answer. That's exactly right. When Satan surrounds you, tempting you and testing you, threatening you and intimidating you, Saul can't go out and fight. Remember, he's the man after the flesh. Saul is to this story what your flesh is to you. Remember what your flesh is. It's everything that you are apart from God. And guess what? Saul's not in fellowship with the Lord. And when people aren't in fellowship with the Lord, they can't lead you to victory in the Lord. Listen carefully. Again, if you forget everything else I say tonight, remember this. If you look for leadership and victory in the unbeliever and in doubt and in unbelief, they can only lead you to defeat. The unbeliever and the godless leader 
and the cowardly leader will not lead you to victory in the Lord. They can only lead you to defeat. So help me understand. Help me understand why you would listen to the counsel of the unbeliever. Why would you listen to the person who doesn't know God, doesn't love God, and doesn't believe the promises of God? And then in verse 9, look what it says. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Doesn't that sound exactly like the kind of threat that Satan would make? Here's the deal. If I can ruin your life, if I can destroy your marriage, if I can ruin your finances, if I can swallow your children, if I can undermine your faith, and if I can cause you, if I can kill the presence of any hope, any love, any faith, of any trust in your life, if I can do that, will you be my servant? That's the terms of Satan. It's not always so awkward. And it isn't always so blunt. But there will come a time where he will threaten and intimidate you. And in verse 10 it says, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. I love that. The reason why I love that is the same challenge that's given by Satan and repeated by Goliath is answered in the person of Jesus Christ. You're given a champion. And this becomes one of the most important things. No one, and and this is probably where I think this passage gets more misunderstood, misquoted, and misapplied than almost any chapter in the whole Bible. You're not the champion. Jesus is. You're not the victor. It's Jesse's son. Jesse's son has been appointed and anointed and designed to confront the enemy and destroy him. And in the New Testament, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ has defeated Satan and created a mechanism where he has lost and he has been put on an open display and Jesus defeated Satan in the most remarkable way. And it wasn't with a flaming sword. And it wasn't with an angelic army. It was with a piece of wood that was suspended between heaven and earth as an innocent man dies for a guilty race of people. And when Jesus died, He broke the power of sin for you. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. 
afraid and greatly afraid. Can you imagine? Satan comes from heaven to the earth and he says, I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to kill everything that you love. And I'm going to destroy everything that you love. I'm going to hurt you. And I'm going to hurt the people that you love. I am going to exercise my right to make life miserable for you. We all have familiar giants. Fear. Discouragement. Loneliness. Sometimes the giants might be worry or guilt or temptation or memory or failure. And so how will you fight your fear? You know, the Bible teaches that we have all the right equipment. The Bible teaches that we've been given the sword of the Spirit. We've been given the Word of God. We've been given the helmet of salvation. We've been given the shield of faith. We've been given the presence of the true and the living God. We've been given the promises of God. We've been given the Spirit of God to empower the people of God. And David, in a moment, is going to face the giant and make no mistake about it there is an army behind him but he feels like he is facing this giant alone but guess what we are not walking alone and we're not walking in weakness we walk with Christ we walk In the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what? Fear disregards God's plan. Fear distorts God's purposes. Fear discourages God's people. Fear disbelieves God's promises. Fear disobeys God's principles. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 26 it says, Nevertheless, you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. God, it's a harsh truth. It's a harsh truth. But when Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 26 says, Nevertheless, you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord. Fear is not a part of of the believer's vocabulary. Remember what the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear because fear is torment. It's a harsh truth, but fear is disobedience. Plain and simple. How can fear be anything other than disobedience to God when He's given us everything that we need in order to walk with God? And you might think, well, you know, it's not that simple. It's complicated. Then why is the most simple phrase almost in the Bible that's repeated over and over and over again? Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. I am with you. Fear not. And by the way, I did a little Bible study this morning on the phrase, fear not. It's always in the imperative tense. 
And you may not be a Greek or a Hebrew scholar, so I'm going to help you out with the imperative tense. The imperative tense means that it is a command. This isn't a suggestion. Whenever you read in your Bible the phrase, don't be afraid. Fear not. You're given a clear command. And what's wonderful about a command is a command can be obeyed or it can be disobeyed. In James chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Do you know what's right? Then you do what's right. Do you know what is good? Then you do what's good. Do you know what is true? Then you do what's true. And you might think, I don't have any control over the fear. But let me help you. If you confront your fear honestly, and if you confess your fear as sin, and if you claim God's promise of protection, I'm left with one of two choices. Either your fear is more real than the promise in the Bible, or the promise in the Bible is more real than your fear. I got good news and I got bad news. Which do you want to hear first? The bad news is I am willing to concede that the fear is real. But what I am not willing to concede is that the fear must dominate your life. Remember what the Bible says. Perfect love casts out fear. And you've heard me use this expression over and over again. Do you know what the difference between fear and love is? Fear is the belief that I might lose something. I could lose something. I could lose my life. I could lose my job. I could lose my marriage. I could lose my children. I could lose honor. I could lose respect. I could lose this. I could lose that. And all of that is true. That's what fear is. The ultimate essence of fear is loss. And you know what love is? Love is sacrifice. Greater love hath no man than this, that he be willing to lay down his life for, the, for a friend. You know what love is? Love perfected is sacrifice. But the difference between fear and the difference between love, they are both forms of loss. Fear is involuntary and love is voluntary. A mother will sacrifice for her child. And she knows exactly what she's losing. A mother will sacrifice for her child and a wife will sacrifice for her husband and a woman will sacrifice for her neighbor. There is something embedded deep within certain people that they're willing to live out a life of sacrifice, but they do it voluntarily. And that's why perfect love casts out fear because no one can take anything away from you if you've already surrendered it to the Lord. The moment that you say, my heart belongs to Christ, 
My life is hid in Christ. My home is in heaven. My marriage and my job and my circumstances are under the envelope of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am willing to have all that Jesus wants me to have. And I am willing to do without whatever Jesus doesn't want me to have. The moment that you come to that conclusion, guess what? You're no longer afraid. In Proverbs 29.25, it says that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. It says, be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 31.6. And this is my favorite. I've got a great big star next to it in my Bible when I was teaching to you through the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10, this is what it says. Fear not, for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Either every word in that sentence is true, or you might as well tear the stinking page out of your Bible and burn it. Take steps to destroy discouragement. Don't lose heart. You know, sometimes fatigue and frustration can wear us down and wear us thin. I'm reminded of what it says in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Nehemiah was at the end of his rope and fatigue and frustration was starting to set in. And Nehemiah cries out and he says, Hear, O Lord, our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their heads and give us plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger. Here's what Nehemiah does. He cries out to God. And as he cries out to God, he says, you deal with them, Lord. You deal with them. You know what? One of the ways that you know that you're maturing in your face, face, your faith, one of the ways you know that you're maturing in your faith is you cry out to God first, not last. I can't even begin to tell you how many people have walked down this aisle and come to the front of this pulpit and said, I tried everything, I've tried everything, I guess I'm going to have to pray. Hey, how about, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go straight up. You know what I've discovered? If you call on God first instead of last, then you're going to find yourself in a circumstance where Fear and discouragement begin to flee. And I'm going to give you just one more hint. 
if you really, truly want to conquer fear and discouragement in your life. It's going to sound counterintuitive, but I'm going to tell you what it is. Carry someone else's burden. Do you know what happens when you carry someone else's burden? You have to lay yours down. And if you're willing to lay yours down and pick someone else's up, I guarantee you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the burden will seem lighter. And then eventually it will become almost nourishment to your soul. And look what it says in verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem of Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons, and the man was old. Remember in the Bible? Here's one of the ways you know you're old. You're absolutely old when you look in the mirror and you look exactly like your dad. Now, Jesse is advanced in years in the days of Saul. You know what the whole point of that verse is? Jesse's too old to deliver the supplies himself. And because he's too old to, to deliver the supplies himself, he will send his son to minister. But that's where the illustration ends, because the father who sends Jesus the Son, he doesn't send Jesus the Son because he's too old to handle it himself. But like a father sending his son, Jesse will send his son as a provision. It says in verse 13, the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle, and the names of the three sons who went out to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And we looked at them earlier as we studied through the book of 1 Samuel, and we looked at their names and the meaning of their names. And in verse 14, David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. In verse 15, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So in verse 15, we see the picture of David going back and forth. And in verse 16, and the Philistine drew near and presented in himself 40 days, morning and evening. Now remember, in the Bible, what does the number 40 mean? It's the number of judgment. Remember, it rained on the planet Earth 40 days and 40 nights. How many years did the children of Israel wander in the wilderness? 40 years. And so for 40 days, Goliath comes morning and evening, threatening, intimidating, persecuting. In verse 17 it says, Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. You know what's interesting about that particular passage? you remember in the New Testament? It says that Jesus came at the perfect time, born of a woman. Jesus comes at the perfect time in order to defeat Satan and sin. Sin has threatened and intimidated 
over and over again. But God is going to send a provision. It says in verse 19, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines because the battle was an ongoing battle. And in verse 20 it says, So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, and he ran to the army, and he greeted his brothers. In verse 23 it says, Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. The idea being, he has heard the threat, he has heard the challenge, he has heard the intimidation in verse 24 and all the men of Israel when they saw the man fled from him and were dreadfully afraid the word dreadfully afraid is almost impossible to translate have you ever heard of the expression a panic attack a panic attack is very very difficult to describe to someone who's never had one the closest I can come to maybe giving you an idea is imagine for, for whatever reason a cruel and wicked person decides to tie you up by your hands and feet and then gag you and then place you on a railroad track. And then you hear the train coming. And the train comes closer and closer and it becomes so close that you can begin to feel the rails bend and shake and you hear the, 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 the sound but then you see the light and you feel the rush of the momentum of the train coming towards you and at the very last moment that you can possibly be saved someone pulls you off the track your body doesn't yet know that you're safe. It is filled with a terrible dread. That's the kind of fear and that's the kind of intimidation. And in verse 25 it says, So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes. And Israel, yeah, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want this guy out of your life? And in verse 26 it says, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? If you know... David's motivation isn't for riches. And it isn't for reward. It's to remove the reproach. Sin is offensive to God. Jesus will remove the sin and the reproach. David asks, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, l listen to David's statement. Can't you see the brothers and everybody around him? 
Excuse me. Nine feet tall. Who is he? Twenty pound spear. Hundred fifty pounds of brass. Walking, living, killing machine. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. That was the repeated statement. Verse 28. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come here, you dirty little runt? And with whom have you left those few stinking sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride. I know your insolence of heart. You come to watch video games. He thinks his little, his little snot-nosed brother is there to get an adrenaline rush because there's no cable at Jesse's house. He accuses him of pride. But you know what else he does? He tries to dissuade him. And by the way, Satan always has somebody in your life Satan always has somebody in your life who will say, it can't be done, you can't win the fight, you can't trust the Lord, you can't walk with Christ, it can't be done, your problems, your trials, your terrors, they're way too much for you to ever get over, and that's repeated by Saul later on in verse 33, you can't do this. There was a man named Henry Augustus Rowland who was a professor of physics at Johns Hopkins University and he was called as an expert witness at a trial. And during the cross-examination, a lawyer said, okay, what are your qualifications to be an expert witness in this case? And the normally modest and retiring professor just replied very quietly, I am the greatest living expert on this subject under discussion. And later a friend who was well acquainted with Roland's shy and unassuming modesty, he expressed surprise at the professor's uncharacteristic answer. And Roland said, well, what did you expect? I was under oath. I had to tell him the truth. And the brother is trying to find all the reasons why David can't do what God has called him to do. The immediate application is you have mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters and friends and family. You have radios and television that will constantly keep telling you you can't trust God. You can't trust Jesus. You can't trust Jesse's son. Jesse's son can't help you. Jesse's son won't help you. You are on your own. Here is what you have to look forward to. A life and a lifestyle of enslavement. That place of refuge and that place of rest, not for you. But David has come. And he will face the giant. David said, and what have I done now? Isn't there a cause? Why are you saying this? 
There's a good reason for me to say this. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones answered him. And then it says in verse 30. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. But David already knows what he must do. He will face the giant. He will slay the giant. He will meet the challenge. He will conquer the giant. One of the things that we've got to come to grips with is realizing that facing our giants is an intimidating experience. But we also have to remember that sometimes doing battle is a lonely experience. And as David is getting ready to enter into the heat of the battle, more and more people are going to drop off. But before the day is over, David is going to experience one of the most memorable experiences of all time. So much so that even VeggieTales will make a movie from it. We have to know our enemy. But we also have to know our armor. When we come back and we kill the giant, I want you to bring into the next study a bit of information. It's the answer to two questions. What is your giant? And what is your plan to bring about its defeat? Because next week, we're going to face the giant. And we're going to slay the giant. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this amazing bit of information, this incredible passage. Lord, we know that for many people, between rest and refuge, the enemy has come to the border of blood and invaded a territory that doesn't belong to them. And Lord, I pray for that person even now, that person who is here right at this very moment and the giant is threatening and intimidating. Lord, I pray that with the arrival of Jesse's son will come an answer and a provision of hope. Lord, we know victory is on its way. The giant will be killed. And the threat will be eliminated. Lord, we thank you for Jesse's son. Who will come. And who will defeat Satan. And who will remove the presence of sin. And the strength of sin. And the power of sin at the cross of Calvary. 
In Jesus' name, amen.